You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Really glad you're here, glad to be here with you. And uh, if you have a Bible, grab it and go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, we are continuing in our Advent series. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, uh, Advent is a Latin word that simply means arrival or coming. And so uh, throughout the centuries, Christians have set aside the four weeks leading up to Christmas as a time both to celebrate the first coming of Jesus into our world to rescue sinners and a time to anticipate the second coming of Jesus into our world when he will finish what he started uh, and make all things new. And so our hope in this series for you and for me and for us and for our city is just that you would embrace the good news of Christmas, uh, that Jesus has come, Jesus is coming again, and that you would come to put your trust in him and believe that in him is found uh, the hope and the, the joy and the peace and the love, ultimately the salvation that we're all longing for. Uh, so that's what this series is all about. And uh, with that, let's, uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 2 together. We're going to look at the story of the wise men this morning. Uh, And so we'll start in verse 1 and uh, read down to verse 12. Uh, Matthew says this, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. So so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, uh, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And, when, uh, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose uh, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me one more time? Well, Father, I do pray that uh, you would make this word and ultimately the gospel of Jesus explosively alive in our hearts. Um, This is perhaps the first time all week where we've all kind of been still and you have had a chance to get our attention. You do have a way of doing that. And so I pray right now you would open our hearts to the reality of Jesus, our eyes to see uh, and behold him, our ears to hear his voice and his call on our lives. I pray that this would be good news for me, not old news as I share it. I just confess, God, a fear of man. I confess, God, the places where I'm not believing the gospel, and I pray that you would lead me into deeper repentance this morning. And I pray that you would do that for all of us. God, ultimately, I pray you would raise the dead. I pray that you would fill every heart in this room with the joy of Jesus Christ, all that you are for us in him, both now and forever. 
And I pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Well, last week I celebrated my 35th birthday. Yep, thank you. And, uh, and like I, I know I don't look a day over 25, but um, like I do every year, I had kind of arranged my whole day around the goal of it being a happy birthday. And so here's what I did. I woke up that morning, I spent some time with God, and then I, my kids sang me happy birthday, and then I had birthday cake for breakfast, and then I went on to work. And throughout my morning, the texts and the phone calls and the Facebook posts were just rolling in, man. Dozens of people saying, you're the best, I love you, happy birthday, I hope this day is as awesome as you. And I mean, like my heart was full by like midday, you know, and I'm thinking, man, 35 is going to be a great year. Until I head to my lunch appointment uh, in the middle of the day, and I got pulled over. Um, and so recently I traded trucks with someone and what I didn't know is that my new truck, uh, the tags had been expired on it since June. So, um, I've been driving around the last several weeks with these expired tags and I got busted for it. I'm thinking, are you kidding me on my birthday? And in that moment, I wasn't super happy about it. Right. Uh, but I kind of shook it off and I'm thinking, all right, like we're going to pull this together. This is going to be a good day. I go throughout my day, a few more hours. I get some more texts some more calls. I'm in a good spot until that afternoon. I get a notification from Amazon that the only present that I'm supposed to receive on my birthday isn't going to arrive because the package has been lost. And so I wasn't super happy about that because um, everybody wants a gift on their birthday, right? And so I'm kind of bummed about that. I'm not going to have a present to open. But I think, all right, you're 35. Like, grow up. Let's get over it. Um, let's, let's push through this. This is going to be a good day. And I'm looking forward to the evening. I've got a Christmas party to go to that night. And I'm gonna, then I'm going to come home and kind of kick my feet up. And I'm going to think, this is going to be a happy birthday. It's going to be a good day. Um, my kids had different plans. So um, that night, I'm bathing my children, and I pull my youngest, Georgie, out of the bathtub and set her down, and I turn around and get Susanna, and then I turn back around, and Georgie's nowhere to be found. Uh, she's running through the house, naked, screaming, laughing, and so I chase her down, find her in the living room, I pick her up, I hoist her up and set her on my shoulder, and I'm walking back to uh, her bedroom. And I, I, I promise you, man, I'm not preaching this up. I'm not exaggerating. If I'm lying, I'm dying. I smelled the worst smell, um, that I've ever smelled in my entire life. Uh, it was, I was accosted and it was just, it was terrible. And then I see my wife, Carrie, and she's got this look on her face and then she just falls over in the floor laughing. And it's in that moment that I realized that on my birthday, my youngest child had pooped all over me. <laughs> and so I'm like, I mean, dude, I'm not kidding, man. It's like, it's all, it's all, and I didn't know it. It's like, she's sitting here and it's everywhere. And so I'm gagging and I've got the child extended <laughs> and I'm trying to hand the child to Carrie uh, and Carrie's laughing. I'm not laughing. Uh, I'm officially not happy. Because all, all I can really think about in that moment is how it's, it's my birthday and I've been pulled over. I got no present and I got pooped on. And like <laughs> nothing about that says happy birthday. And, uh, and so, you know, like in another moment, I might have had the, the grace to laugh at it, but I was just done. All right. I was kind of like I'd reached my limit. I was done with it. And in spite of the fact that I had dozens of people like wishing me happiness all day, and I had so much in my life to be thankful for. In my own power and resources, I still couldn't arrange my life in such a way to produce a real and lasting happiness. I arranged my whole day around the goal of me being happy, and I flat out failed. 
And the reason I share that story with you this morning is because I really think it's the story of how we live our lives. Um, Here's what I mean. By nature, what unites every single human being on this planet is that by nature, we naturally arrange our lives around the goal of being happy. Do we not? Like at the bottom, bottom line, at the end of the day, all we really want is to be happy. Nobody sets out to be miserable. Nobody sets out to be heartbroken. Nobody sets out to be empty. What we really want at the end of the day, what we're pursuing more than anything else in this world at the core of our being is a real form of happiness. The better, more biblical word for that would be joy. Um, The great C.S. Lewis says that the whole story of human history is the pursuit of joy. Here's what he says. He says, All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, it's all the long, terrible story of man trying to find something which will make him truly joyful. So Lewis says, like everything we do, the core motivation is, man, we're after joy. And um, we live in a culture that says if you just arrange your life the right way, you'll find it. And that's especially true this time of year. Um, Christmas in our culture, tragically, has become this thing where we sing about how tis the season to be jolly, and then you've got commercialism and all these messages bombarding you all day long that say, if you consume enough stuff and if you make the right adjustments in your life, you'll find it. You'll find the joy that you're looking for. And the only problem with that is you and I both know it doesn't work because we've played that game. In fact, the more you look for your joy in your own stuff and your own resources and your own circumstances, the more disappointment and emptiness you find. Um, here's the way one writer says it, and I think this just says it better than I can. He's, it's, it's an awful bait and switch. Uh, you pursue joy in materialism, and you get stuck in debt. We pursue joy in sexuality, and we're riddled with shame and hurt. We pursue joy in a spouse, and we grumble when we find their faults. We pursue joy in our children, and we gnaw ourselves with worry over their well-being. We pursue joy in work, and we become stressed-out performers. Hello. We pursue joy in status, and we are controlled by other people's opinions. All these things are good in and of themselves, but when we aim at them to find joy, all we ultimately find is disappointment. So I think the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is, why is it that we spend our whole lives pursuing joy and yet few of us ever seem to find it? Uh, We might find it for a moment, but then something happens and it's gone. You get pulled over and it's over, right? Why does joy always seem just beyond our reach? And I think Matthew answers that question for us in his Christmas narrative by inviting us to ask a different question. One more quote. Here's, the way the, here's how I want to ask the question this morning. Tony Rinke in his book, The Joy Project, is a little pamphlet. If you haven't read it, you should get it on Amazon and read it. Uh, hopefully they won't lose your package. Here's what the, here's what the quote says. He says, Uh, We think of our chase for joy as a fundamental right, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's no surprise. By nature, we are pleasure seekers, and we are also chronically unsuccessful at finding the type of joy that will endure for more than a passing moment. But what if long-lasting joy isn't found at all? What if the deepest and most durable happiness breaks into our lives, overcomes our boredom, and ultimately finds us? What if true joy is out of our reach, but reaches for us? What if true joy isn't something to be pursued and found? 
What if true joy pursues and finds you? What if true joy is out of your reach, but it's actually reaching for you? Guys, this is what Christmas is trying to tell us. Christmas is trying to tell you that joy has broken into your world and it's reaching for you. And my prayer for you this morning and for me is that we would find, or for some of you, you would re-find, you would rediscover this joy. This joy would find you, and in that, you would find the joy you've been searching for your whole life. It's available to you right here, right now. And I want to go into the Christmas story, and I just want to unpack it, and let's see this together, all right? So uh, Matthew chapter 2, let's try to put ourselves in the shoes of the wise men, and here's what happens. Chapter 2 Verse 1, look at it again uh, from the top. He says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, these wise men from the east come running to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star and have come to worship him. I would underline that phrase. They've come to worship him. And I think the first question we have to ask in order to understand this story is, Who are these wise men? Who are they? And of course, if you, if you look at modern nativity scenes or if you look at modern Christmas carols, we see that these are three oriental kings, right? You know the song, we three kings from Orient are uh, bearing gifts, we travel afar, right? They're three oriental kings. Only problem with that is it's not true. Uh, I hate to break it to you, but that's all a lie. Um, they're, they're, they're not three oriental kings, all right? So first of all, look back at the text. They're not kings, they're wise men. Okay, which I'll explain in just a second. Second of all, if you notice, it doesn't say there were three of them. Um, it says there's three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but that doesn't mean there's three of them. I, you know, I might give my wife Carrie three gifts for Christmas, but that doesn't mean that there are three of me. She wishes. Um, and so all we really know about these guys, we don't know how many there were. We don't know, all, we don't know that stuff. All we really know is that they're from the east, which is massive. Because it means that they're Gentiles, they're pagans, and they're not Jews, all right? We also know their occupation because it says that they were wise men. Um, the, the word that Matthew uses for wise men is the Greek word magi. It's where we get our word magician. Um, so if you put it all together, these were Gentile pagan magicians and astrologers from the east. Everywhere you see them mentioned in biblical literature... Everywhere you see their practice talked about, it's wholeheartedly condemned. They were sorcerers. They worshipped the stars. They were into the dark magical arts. They were, they were not on the same page with the God of the Bible and what he's all about, which should beg a powerful question. Okay, Why, why, why is a group of Gentile pagan astrologers running all the way across the world in pursuit of the Jewish Messiah? Think about this with me. These guys, they didn't grow up in the Jewish tradition. They don't believe in the God of the Bible. And yet they're trekking all the way across the world on this expensive, dangerous journey, pursuing Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, so that they can worship him. Why, why is a group of pagan astrologers pursuing Jesus? That makes no sense to me. Well, they tell us in verse 2 that they're doing it because they saw his star in the sky. They saw his star in the sky. This is mind-blowing to me. Um, these guys were experts on the stars, worshipers of the stars, but something tells me they've never seen a star like this before. They didn't find this star. This star found them. 
This star appears, they're doing their thing, whatever, you know, pagan astrologers do, and all of a sudden, bam, this star interrupts their lives and transforms their whole worldview in a, in a second. Like this star breaks into the sky and God reveals to them the truth that, that the life and the joy that they're looking for can't be found in the stars and the constellations, but it's found in the one who created the stars and the constellations, who has put on flesh and stepped into our world. You want to know the reason why a group of pagan Jewish astrologers are pursuing Jesus? It's because Jesus is pursuing them. And in the form of this star, God has broken into their world of astrology and the dark arts. Think about this with me. They've constructed a worldview that doesn't even give God permission to exist. And he's broken into that space and told them the truth about Jesus. Hey, the good news you've been searching for your whole life, you won't find it in the stars. The star you're looking for is in Bethlehem. The joy you're looking for has arrived. It's here. They're pursuing Jesus because Jesus is pursuing them. And you never know, by the way, where he's going to appear. This reminds me of one of my favorite quotes of all time from Frederick Buechner. Buechner says, Once we've seen him in a stable, talking about Jesus, we can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of mankind. These guys are pursuing Jesus because Jesus is pursuing them. And God, through this star, reveals to them the truth and the good news they've been looking for. And they come to put their trust in God's promise that they must have heard the Israelites preaching that a star will come out of Jacob and a scepter, a king, will rise out of Israel. They put their hope in that promise. They pack their bags. They take off sprinting to Jerusalem. We've got to worship the Savior and the King of the world. And so off they go. And then look in verse 9. Here's what happens when they encounter Jesus. Check this out. They see, uh, verse 9, they see the same star break into the sky again. Um, and, and so they follow it uh, from the city of Jerusalem down to the backwoods of Bethlehem. Uh, verse 9, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 10, and the wise men rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Here's the point. Um, just like the wise men, when you meet Jesus, you will rejoice exceedingly and be filled with great joy because Jesus is the good news that you've been searching for your whole life. This is what, this is what Matthew wants you to see. This is what Christmas is trying to tell you. This is what your soul is trying to tell you. Um, the, 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 the joy you've been pursuing your whole life is actually pursuing you. And this joy has a name, and his name is Jesus. I love in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus hits the scene, the, the angel announces him as good news of great joy for all people. All people. All people in Paragold, all people in this room. Jesus is good news of great joy for you. And you want to know why Jesus is good news of great joy for you? Because Jesus has come to do what you and I could never do. Jesus has stepped into our world. He's put on flesh and broken into our reality so that he could live the life we failed to live and die the death that we deserve to die so he could save us from our sins and bring us into the presence of God where you can be with God and God can be with you. 
In fact, that's what his name means, by the way. If you look back, go back to Matthew chapter 1, and let's look at his name for a second. Matthew chapter 1, I'll put it on the screen for you. This joy has a name. Here it is. The angel's talking to Joseph, and he says, Hey, Mary's going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. And then here he explains it. He will save his people from their sins. Skip down to verse 23. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus means the Lord saves. Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus is the good news you long for because he came to save you from your sin and he came to bring you into the presence of God so that you can be with God and God can be with you. Guys, this is just put down every other lie, every other thing that's seeking your attention for just a moment and just try to get on board with this. This is what your soul is trying to tell you. You were created to be in the presence of God. You were created to be in relationship with the living God who made you. Your joy is only compatible with him. David says in Psalm 16 that in his presence there's fullness of joy and pleasures evermore. We kind of think of God sometimes like a cosmic killjoy. Like he wants to take away all the things that make you happy, the things you think will make you happy. In reality, he wants to give you the only gift and the only reality that will make you happy, which is himself. Jesus came to give you the gift of himself, his presence. That's why you've heard us say we're not trying to be catchy or cute. It's just, it's just, it's just the good news you long for. Christmas is not about the joy of presence. Christmas is about the joy of presence. Jesus' presence. He came to give you the gift of himself. And listen, outside of the presence of, of God, you and I are basically fish out of water. You can't breathe. How many of you in the room feel like you're struggling to breathe right now? You came in here with baggage, with pain, with hurt. You're, you're fighting and gasping for air, for life, for joy. Because the Bible tells us, the true story of human history tells us that outside of the presence of God, we're all dying. There's no joy and no life to be found there. And so for us to understand why Jesus is good news of great joy, you kind of got to understand that's the bad news. See, the bad news is we've all been disconnected from God and separated from his presence by something Matthew calls sin. And sin is basically, the essence of it is believing the lie that God can't satisfy me. Like he, it's, it's, it's basically like affectional atheism. Like we think of intellectual atheism, there is no God. What's almost worse than that is affectional atheism. God can't satisfy me. Maybe he can save me, but he can't fulfill me. He can't satisfy me. And so I need to look outside of God to find something that can complete my joy. That's what the Bible calls sin, and it's a lie. It's a bait and switch. It's a bait and switch. And what Jesus wants us to see this morning in this passage is that he has come to bring you into the presence of God. The only thing in this universe that can fill that void in your life. I love that C.S. Lewis calls it the long, terrible story. If you look at the story of human history, it's this long, terrible story of us trying to find something that will make us truly joyful. Um, We fill our souls with all kinds of stuff. Uh, More money, more success, more entertainment, a better house, a better relationship, a better image, a better job, another sexual encounter. Uh, We turn to pills, drugs, alcohol. 
For the wise men, it was the stars and constellations. That's where they were looking for meaning and value and joy in life. What is it for you? What's the thing right now, this morning, that you're searching for and reaching for and grasping for, believing that, man, if I could just grab that and and ascertain that and then hang on to that and keep that and preserve that and protect that, then my life will be complete and I'll truly be happy. Guys, it's a lie. It's a lie. Um, I, uh, yesterday, spent some time watching... My youngest daughter, Georgie, when she wasn't pooping on me, she was uh, playing this, this game. It's one of those, like, boards where you've got certain shapes, you know, shapes, and you've got blocks that match those shapes. You've got to try to match it, right? And I watched her in, like, rage for, like, five minutes try to fit a rectangular shape into a, into a square shape. And she's pushing and turning, and she's angry, and she's slapping it, and it's, like, it's not working because she's trying to fill a void with an object that doesn't fit. And I've been reminded all week in my own life how true it is for me when when Blaise Pascal says this. He says, there's a God-shaped vacuum, a hole in your heart, in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. There's a hole in your heart that only Jesus can fill. You believe that? Are you going to continue to buy into this lie that you can fill it with all this other stuff? The hope of Christmas, the joy of Christmas is that you can stop searching for joy out here and you can find all that you need in Jesus. He's come for you guys. He's broken into our world to save you and satisfy you with the gift of himself. All you have to do this morning is receive that gift. That's all you have to do. And so that, that kind of begs the question, right? Have you received the gift of Jesus? Have you put your trust in him? Have you encountered and embraced him as the good news you're longing for? Or more accurately, has he encountered and embraced you? And, and maybe you sit there this morning and, and you find yourself asking the question, well, like, I, how do I do that? Like, I want that. I want to believe that's true. But how do I come to Jesus and meet him and encounter him and embrace him for my joy. How do I do that? And, and so what I want to do for the rest of the time, just by way of application, is uh, there, are, there are three applications, three ways that we are invited to come to Jesus and embrace him as our joy in this passage. And so I want us to look at that together. Three ways. Here we go. Um, number one, what you see in this story is that Christmas is inviting you to come to Jesus and embrace the real Jesus not the religious idea of Jesus, okay? Come to Jesus and embrace the real Jesus, not the religious idea of Jesus. Here's what I mean. Look back at verse 2 and just kind of marvel at this with me. Uh, The wise men roll into Jerusalem and they say, where's the king of the Jews? We we know he's arrived. We saw his star. Where can we find him? And in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, He was troubled, and the whole city of Jerusalem was troubled with him. And assembling all the chief priests and all the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, uh, you know, where's this child to be born? And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. And they go on and they say, hey, this king's going to come out of Bethlehem. That's where you can can find him. Go and, and find him. Let us know how that works out for you. Do you catch the irony in this story? 
Um, the irony that Matthew wants us to see is that you've got pagan astrologers coming from the east all the way across the world to embrace and worship the Messiah, but the religious experts and the scholars do nothing, and he's in their own backyard. They do nothing. I mean, like you'd expect these guys to be the first ones to gather up their stuff and run to Bethlehem at the slightest rumor that the Savior had been born, but they do nothing. In fact, it says the whole city of Jerusalem does nothing. You see that? Look back at the text. They do nothing. This is the religious capital of Israel, the home of the temple of God. You would think that all these Jews would be rejoicing that the Messiah they've heard about their whole lives, like they used to sit on grandpa's knee and hear stories about the one who would come. They've, they've gone to the temple and sang songs about this Messiah. They've read about him. They've memorized the whole Old Testament, all the promises of God. They know all about the Messiah, and yet he finally comes. He's in their backyard, and they do nothing. In fact, it says that they're troubled by this because this news about Jesus is interfering with their lives and their agenda. And so in a very unlikely twist, you have irreligious pagans coming all the way across the world to be the first to come and worship Jesus, the Messiah. And here's what Matthew and the biblical authors want us to see, guys, over and over again in the scriptures. It's possible to know all about God without actually knowing God. You, you, you see this over and over with the Pharisees and the scribes. They're the experts on the scriptures. They know all, the, the, all about the Messiah. They, they, they can give you all the stats about him. Do you see how quickly they answered the question? for the, These pagans don't know. Where, where are we going to find him? Oh, that's easy. Micah chapter 5 says he's going to be in Bethlehem. What else do you want to know? Like they, they know all the stats about him, all the information about him, and somehow they miss him. The whole city misses him. Jesus uh, says this to the religious people in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. He says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says, You, you look in the scriptures to try to find life. The scriptures are about me, and you won't come to me so I can give you life and joy. You know all the right answers. You've studied it all, and you're missing the whole point. This, this, this would be almost like me reading a book about dating Carrie while on a date with Carrie, reading the chapter about how I'm not supposed to read books while I'm on a date with Carrie. Right? So I'm sitting there. We're on a date. We're at Starbucks, and I'm reading. I've got my highlighter around. It says, you know, do not... Uh, read books while you're on a date with Carrie. Like when you're on a date with Carrie, she doesn't like that. Don't read books. And she's sitting in front of me going like, hey, I'm right, like pay attention to me. I'm right here in front of you. And I'm missing the real person and the real relationship that's right in front of me. They missed it. And you want to know what, what burdens us as pastors is that if it's possible for all of Jerusalem to miss it, it's possible for all of Paragul to miss it. Um, our concern is that in a context like the religious South, many of you know all about Jesus, but you don't actually know him. You, you know, you, you've heard all about him. This was my story until I was about 19, 20 years old. 
I had heard all about him. I had read all about him. I had sang all about him. I would talked all about him, but I'd never actually met him. I grew up in a religious context. I grew up in a, in a church context. I prayed the prayer. I got baptized. I went to church camp and reded- rededicated my life a thousand times, and I'd never actually met him. I tried to be a good person. I tried to do the right thing and follow the rules. The problem was I'd never encountered the real Jesus. You want to know why some of you are struggling to experience joy this morning? Not trying to scare you, just trying to invite you. Jesus only wants to invite you. Might it be possible that you've never encountered and embraced the real Jesus, but only the religious idea of Jesus? The invitation of the gospel for you is to come to him right now, to lay down your preconceived ideas about what he's like and to come to him and embrace him. That's our vision. That's why we exist as a church. Our vision, our hope is we want to see every man, woman, and child in this city have a daily encounter with the real Jesus, to trade their, the Jesus of our heads for the real Jesus who is good news to all of life. That's the invitation for you right now. Come to him, embrace him as a real person and not a religious idea. And come to him and embrace him as your king. So that's the second way we're invited to come to Jesus in this story is to come to him and embrace him as the real king. Uh, Think about how bold this was for the wise men. Look at verse two. It says, they burst into Jerusalem. They walk right up to the king sitting on the throne and they say, hey, where's the real king? That's, that's, That's gutsy, man. They're gonna walk right up to Herod on the throne and say, hey, dude, where's the real king at? We've heard that the real king is here. We'd like to talk to the real king, not the puppet king. Where's the real king? And so what you have to realize is this is not going to sit very well with Herod. Um, Herod's been appointed by Rome to rule and reign as, in Jerusalem as the king of the Jews. And we know from history that Herod is an unusually violent ruler. He had his wife murdered. He had his own sons murdered. He had anyone killed who threatened to knock him off the throne. And so he has the same response to Jesus. You know, he ga- gathers the wise men. And he says, hey, you go find out exactly where he's at. Tell me so that I can come and worship him. And when the wise men don't do that, you find Herod's true motives. If you look in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2, he sends his henchmen over to Bethlehem to slaughter all the male children who were aged two and under so that he can eliminate this newborn king before the news about him ever gets out. So Herod is going to do anything he can to keep from getting himself knocked off the throne. This is kind of the part of Christmas that we conveniently leave out of our nativity scenes and our Christmas programs. Like we don't, we don't have our kids up here kind of reenacting this, which is probably good. Um, but, but Matthew records it because there's something in it you and I need to hear desperately. Your joy depends on it. See, Christmas is announcing to you that there's a new king in town and his name is Jesus He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And with his arrival, the whole kingdom of God is broken into our universe. It's, it's here. It's now. It's present. It's in the process of making all things new. And that's really good news on the one hand. It's also really bad news to my personal kingdom and my agenda. And what Matthew wants us to see is that really at our core, we're not that much different from Herod. Um, I'm going to read this quote to you. It's kind of lengthy, but I think it's, it's worth it. Here's the way one author says this. He says, What we're witnessing in this episode of the Christmas story is a turf war. Herod was the king of Israel. It was his territory. 
But now Jesus is born, and he's the real king of the Jews and the whole world for that matter. And that means that Israel and everything else belongs to him, not Herod or anybody else. So Herod had a decision to make. He could submit to Jesus and embrace him as the true and rightful king, or he could resist Jesus and reject Jesus and insist on being the Lord of his own life. Herod chose the second option. And the mass murder of hundreds of innocent children was motivated by Herod's attitude of refusing to let Jesus be the ruler of his life. The Bible calls this attitude sin. It's the posture which, re- which resists Jesus' loving rule and reign over your life. It's the attitude that says, this is my turf, Jesus, not yours. I will not let you have it. I will fight you. King Herod's reaction to Jesus is, in this sense, a picture of us all. At the core of every human heart is an impulse that says, no one tells me what to do. In every her- human heart, then, there is a little King Herod that wants to rule and that is threatened by the arrival of the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. This this has confronted me over and over this week. There's just there's places in my life where I draw lines with Jesus, or I try to. And it's like, hey Jesus, you can have this stuff over here, but don't you dare touch this over here because this is mine. This is my world. This is my turf, Jesus, not yours, and I will fight you for this. How many of you, in this, of you in this room do this with Jesus? We all do this with Jesus. You want to know why? Because all of us ultimately want to be the kings of our own lives. How's that working for you? When it's on you to kind of build your kingdom and manage it in such a way that you can keep yourself happy, how's that game working for you? The, 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 the secret to true and lasting joy, to redemption, is to dethrone yourself and surrender yourself to the true king to Jesus. Come to him and embrace him as the real king. Make that your posture in his life. The sad irony is, and I've seen this over and over in my life, um, when you insist on being the king of your own life, you're actually not in charge of anything. You just become a slave. Like I become a slave to performance. I become a slave to other people's approval. I become a slave to guilt, fear, and shame. And ultimately, apart from King Jesus, we're just slaves to sin and death. There's nothing you can do to rescue yourself. You need a better king. And Christmas is telling you there's good news because one is here. And his name is Jesus. Come to him this morning. Dethrone yourself. Surrender your whole life to Jesus. Put yourself under his loving rule and reign. And lastly, Christmas invites us not only to come to him and embrace the real Jesus as a real person, embrace him as the real king. But Christmas invites us to come and embrace Jesus as the real treasure that you're seeking. So look back at verse 11. The wise men rush uh, into Joseph and Mary's house and they finally lay their eyes on Jesus and it says they fall down and they worship him. And look at what verse 11 says. Then opening their treasures, they offer him gifts Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We don't know like what measures they gave Jesus. I know that my wife's all into the essential oil stuff, and like you could buy a little bottle of that frankincense right now is like a hundred bucks to get like a little. That's like the modern value for it. And so um, I, I don't know what like what measures they gave to Jesus, but what we know is the smallest measure of gold and frankincense and myrrh were extremely valuable in the ancient world. And if you possessed all three, you were rich, very rich. 
And, and like we kind of all understand that gold is valuable, but what you don't realize is that the only thing more valuable than that in Jesus' day was frankincense and myrrh. Um, Douglas Daly, he's the director of the Institute of Systematic Botany at the New York uh, Botanical Gardens, and just saying that makes me feel a lot smarter than I am. Uh, but here's what he says. He says, frankincense and myrrh were the most valuable plants on earth. I would say more valuable than gold. They were two commodities of extreme importance to the ancients, equivalent in many ways to the modern global value of oil and gold. So the question is, why did they give their treasures to Jesus? Why did they take what their world viewed as the most valuable, priceless commodities that you could possibly have and take them and just lay them at Jesus' feet? Why did they give him their treasure? And the most simplest answer you could possibly give is they, because they just didn't need it anymore. Because they had found the treasure they had been looking for their whole lives. So they give everything to Jesus. As an act of worship, they're giving up the things they used to look to for their identity and for their value, and they're laying the, these things at the feet of Jesus as a way of saying, I don't care what the world values. I don't care what anybody else says. Jesus, you're everything. Like, you're all I have. You're all I need. You're all I want. You are the true treasure that my heart has been seeking. I don't need this stuff anymore to make me happy. You can have it all as an act of worship. I was made for you. I want you. I need you. I love you. Here, Jesus, you can have it. You can have everything. In fact, you are everything. And they give all their treasures to Jesus. Have you done that? Like in a season whenever like everything is screaming at you, you just need more toys and more stuff. Have you, have you believed the truth that all your heart really needs is Jesus? He's the greatest treasure in all the universe. And here's what's fascinating. I'll close with this, with this right here. It's just a burden that the pastors and I have that, like, here's what's amazing, and you actually see this in Matthew's gospel. What's beautiful is that when you come to Jesus and you embrace him as ultimate reality, not a religious idea, you embrace him as the real king and not you, and you embrace him as the real treasure and nothing else, your heart will be filled with such an exceeding joy that you won't be able to contain it. And you won't be able to keep your mouth shut because this is a treasure that can't be hoarded. And you praise whatever you prize, right? You, whatever it is that you love and prize and value, that's the stuff you talk about, right? Whether it's your favorite band or favorite sports team or it's your kids or it's your accomplishments, whatever you prize, you praise and you celebrate and you tell that to everybody. Here's what I love about Matthew's gospel. It starts with an invitation for the nations, all the way from the east, like the nations, everybody, to come and see Jesus. And then it closes with a command to go and tell about Jesus. At the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, all right, first he says, all nations come and see. And then the very last thing Jesus says is, all right, go and tell every nation. Go make disciples of all nations. Guys, there are people in this city, there are people in this room, and there are people in this city, there are neighbors, people you work with, people in your family, relationships you have that are, that are wandering in the dark, searching desperately for joy. And they're burnout and they're broken and they're hopelessly lost and they're disappointed. And we've been entrusted and given the greatest treasure in all the universe. You can't hoard that. Like that treasure, that wealth is meant to be shared. 
Come and see this king and worship him and go and tell. And our hope is that Acts 8 would be a reality in our city. You see in Acts 8 that when people meet the real Jesus, it says there was much joy in that city. That's the reason our church exists. That's why God put it in Jared and Luke's heart five years ago to plant this church. That's why I moved home from Kansas City because I didn't come here just to play a religious game. I came to be a part of that movement. That's what God wants to do in our city. He wants to save you and satisfy you and send you out with the good news of Jesus Christ so that more and more sinners can be reconciled and brought into the presence of God where there is true and lasting joy forevermore. And guys, that's good news for you right now. That's good news for you in five minutes or in 30 minutes when you're at lunch. That's good news for you this afternoon when you get a phone call and your day gets interrupted or you get bad news or the kids are going nuts. That's good news for you on Monday morning. That's good news for you forever. All you have to do in order to uh, experience that good news is humble yourself and acknowledge that you need Jesus and come to him and receive him. All you have to do is believe the, the truth that the greatest gift you could ever receive is not one that gets placed under your tree. It's the gift that was placed on a tree to purchase for you your freedom, your life, and your joy. That's what I love about Jesus. He does the unthinkable. The, the, the king of kings and lord of lords trades his heavenly throne for a manger and then ultimately for a cross. And true treasure and wealth empties himself on the cross to make you rich with his very presence and his love and his grace. All you need to do is come and receive that this morning.